Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. I'm really delighted to introduce this podcast on a fascinating article published in the November issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology entitled Epilepsy and Hemiplegic Cerebral Palsy Due to Perinatal Arterial Ischemic Stroke by Wanagasinghe et al. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Harvey, who is the Director of the Epilepsy Program at the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne in Australia, and by Professor Brian Neville, who is the Professor of Childhood Epilepsy at the Institute of Child Health in London. Please can we start with you, Simon, to discuss the background of the paper. This is a retrospective study of children with cerebral palsy and, and epilepsy, but looking at a particular subgroup of cerebral palsy, specifically children with hemiplegic cerebral palsy secondary to arterial ischemic stroke. And we looked at a group of patients who were ascertained from a cerebral palsy registry in, uh, in Victoria, Australia, and did a detailed study of their epilepsy, looking closely at the patients that had seizures. And we were interested in their seizure types, their EEG patterns, making a specific syndrome diagnosis where possible, and then looking at the evolution over follow-up period of about 10 years. And the main features, the main findings in this study were that seizures occurred in about half of these children, so a relatively high proportion of the patients. And the seizures essentially were in two forms. They were either infantile presentations with epileptic spasms or presentations in the preschool, primary school age with focal seizures. And overall, the outcome in, in both groups of patients was favourable. There were a few children in the spasms group that had refractory seizures. Two of them went on to have epilepsy surgery and one developed a, a symptomatic generalised epilepsy. But the majority of the children either evolved into focal seizures, which subsequently remitted, or, or simply had no further seizures. In the focal seizure group, the uh, patients had fairly homogeneous electroclinical picture with seizure characteristics and, and EEG patterns that were reminiscent of what we see in otherwise normal children with idiopathic partial epilepsies, specifically benign occipital ep epilepsy, the Paniotopoulos syndrome, and benign Rolandic epilepsy. And the majority of these patients had uh, very few seizures, came under control with medication, and many uh, ultimately remitted. And looking at the proportion that had uh, what we defined as sort of active epilepsy, meaning seizures in the last year, only about 20% of the patients at any time had active epilepsy. And over the period of follow-up, only 15% had ongoing seizures. So the main points were that we were seeing uh, an age-limited presentation uh, in infancy or later childhood with overall a fairly benign outcome, which is probably uh, a little bit paradoxical when one generally considers seizures occurring in the context of neurological disability and uh, an underlying structural lesion. One would normally think of those as using the old terminology, symptomatic focal epilepsy, for which one would anticipate seizures would be troublesome and have a low remission rate. So hopefully a, a good news outcome. Particularly the fact that it took a specific pathological group within the multiple routes that there are to having a congenital hemiplegia, because it then ran some chance of being able to demonstrate pathological entities uh, within it and the seizures is one. And 
I think it's difficult to study seizure disorders without having cognitive data and also to define a benign condition on the basis of the seizure remission without knowing the cognitive outcome as well. Though I suspect the cognitive outcome from what you've said about the school attendance of these children may not be too bad. So these specific issues that I would raise are firstly the spasms in which you hint at them being quite often uh, asymmetric. And if they also have a good outcome, is this really a hemi-infantile spasms syndrome with a relatively benign cognitive as well as benign seizure outcome? I think it's well recognised that infantile spasms invariably have a focal basis or, or multifocal basis and it's well known, as, as you know, Brian, that you know, many patients can have uh, focal resections and be cured of a... Yeah, uh, no, I'm not arguing about that. What I'm arguing about is whether this self-remitting and benign outcome did also include a relatively benign cognitive outcome. In other words, not with, say, 80% of them with quite severe cognitive impairment and high rates of autism. As you know, the, the paper doesn't include detailed cognitive and behavioural no. uh, findings. It's, it's, it's very much a paper focused on the seizure type, seizure syndromes and, and yeah. the evolution. The, the, the spasms in these patients were self-limited in six out of the nine children. In two of the children, they were ongoing and were severe and led to the patients having hemispherectomy and one child continued with a symptomatic generalised epilepsy, but two-thirds of the patients, as is commonly noted, the seizures settled as the children left infancy. Now, I don't have the cognitive data for the groups with or without spasms and the no. group of spasms with and without seizure remission. At some stage, that would be of interest, I think, because... You wouldn't be surprised that the children with hemiplegic cerebral palsy who develop spasms are going to have worse cognitive outcomes than children who pass through infancy without spasms. I mean, that's, oh, no. that's well described in the Down syndrome literature, in the tuberous sclerosis literature, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure it would, it would apply here. I, I think the point is that the occurrence of, of infantile spasms in a child who, who's often subsequently discovered to have hemiplegic cerebral palsy is, is not necessarily a, a sinister finding for intractable epilepsy and inevitability of severe seizure outcomes. Maybe I could pick up that point in terms of whether you have any thoughts that some surgery performed early uh, might be unnecessary in this situation. I think that may well be the case, and I, I think we see that, or we've seen that in the past in Sturge-Weber syndrome, and uh, I don't think there's, there's any doubt that children with hemispheric dysplasias, uh, particularly hemimegalencephaly, uh, once they start fitting, continue to fit, and they're cognitive outcomes are adversely affected by what is often a generalised epileptic encephalopathy. But in cerebral palsy with, with ischemic lesions, as I've described here, it's quite likely that the spasms will be yeah. self-limited. And we, you see that in some TS patients as well. I agree. Can I move on to the, the vomiting, which is interesting? Tom Panitopoulos did a study of a very large number of patients and found only a handful percentage with vomiting, which was related to temporal neocortex. And in fact, in his condition, he was, I think, able to separate it as a temporal, posterior temporal neocortical problem 
from the gasto type of occipital epilepsy, which didn't seem to have vomiting as a part of it. It's an interesting phenomenon, and apparently, you know, it seems to be relatively uh, uncommon and nothing to do with mesial temporal epilepsy. Sure. I think when vomiting is a prominent feature, particularly if seen with version in a seizure, I think one, one needs to be thinking about a, an occipital or at least a posterior cortex origin, and that's the implication from this. I'm actually saying other than that, that it's actually temporal. I'll give you posterior temporal neocortex, but not right. specifically occipital. Hasn't Panutopoulos changed the name from benign occipital to benign autonomic epilepsy? Uh, indeed, indeed so, that's right. With the autonomic being based primarily in the temporal neocortex uh, and insular region, that's where... Yeah, no, no, I agree, and, and as you're aware, seizure semiology in all seizures is not specific to where seizures start. I mean, the, the seizure semiology of mesial temporal lobe epilepsy is not hippocampal, it's insular and orbitofrontal. You know, the, the, the hippocampus doesn't give you all the things that you see in a temporal lobe seizure. Yes, it depends how carefully the history is taken as to whether you get the beginning of it and the spread of it, or whether you take primarily the more major motor elements as to how much of that you manage to include. But the autonomic disturbance and the automatisms, you know, oroelementary and manual, these are, they're not from activation of the hippocampus. I mean, I think all, all semiology relates to a, a network of dysfunction in the brain, areas that are activated, areas that are inactivated, areas that are entrained. And I think what we see in all forms of epilepsy is, is surprising stereotypy of semiology in, in syndromes that presumably reflects networks that are affected either in a, in a positive or negative way during a seizure and the, the clustering of the seizure types in these children I think is very you know reminiscent of what we see in the idiopathic partial epilepsies the, the preschool Paniotopolis variety and the primary school Romantic variety and, and often they were mixed together we, we certainly weren't seeing classical benign Rolandic epilepsy or, or, or classical uh, Paniotopolis syndrome, but there was a, a mix of those combined with what were very prominent, you know, frequent stereotyped epileptiform discharges in, in children who only had one or two seizures, uh, again, typical of the idiopathic partial epilepsies. Tom did describe some symptomatic lesional syndrome in children, which did very closely resemble the idiopathic. I think it occurs extremely commonly, particularly in children with various developmental disabilities, often mild disabilities, particularly in communication areas. We see central temporal spikes in our epilepsy surgery kids. I'm sure you've seen that as well. And the, mm. the thing is, is that it confers some age limitation to the uh, manifestations of the seizure disorder, either in a severity way or, or maybe even in, a, in an ultimate remission way. And I see lots of children in my outpatient clinic, in the epilepsy clinic, who have a variety of disabilities, many of them coming from developmental pediatricians, uh, not just children with hemiplegic cerebral palsy, but other varieties of cerebral palsy, whose epilepsy and their EEG just has this very strong flavour of, uh, of idiopathic uh, epilepsy. And, and, and runs the course as we've described in the paper here. And I, I think it's important when we use, I mean, these terms are not very good terms, idiopathic. The implication is that it's genetic. We know that these 
epilepsies that we call idiopathic partial epilepsy uh, in otherwise normal children, but, but in, in probably these developmental disability settings as well, are not genetic like idiopathic generalized epilepsies are. Channelopathies are not described and they don't have the very high genetic associations. And the, the historical literature, I think, still stands up that these are best conceptualized as maturational disorders. There's something maturational about them. And as these children's brains mature or age or whatever goes on, they seem to settle down, and I think that does occur in a somewhat atypical way in these children with cerebral palsy, and it's most florid and atypical forms, syndromes like ESCS, was the uh, ACARDI sort of syndrome of, of atypical benign relantic epilepsy with negative myoclonus and so forth. Uh, none of those patients featured uh, in this cohort. We saw the sort of mild and moderate spectrum. One example of what you're describing is in the Perisylvian group of uh, cerebral palsies, the Worcester drought or Olber yes, variant, very, very with good. or without Perisylvian polymicrogyria, in which you can see Sylvian and oromotor uh, seizures, which uh, strongly resemble Rolandic uh, seizures. So that, well, I think they are Rolandic seizures. So, um, yes, I agree with you, Brian, that perisylvian group, be it that they may be polymicrogyria or an ischemic insult or a post-herpes encephalitis, they too can manifest with this, I suppose, sort of almost a functional disturbance with, a, with an atypical form of idiopathic partial epilepsy with prominent opercular features that can similarly settle down, but they can also manifest with other phenotypes, as you know, um, a true symptomatic focal epilepsy and sometimes even a symptomatic generalised epilepsy. And I, I think these cases really highlight the problems with our fairly simplistic classification for, for seizure disorders. And, you know, I think there are these single etiologies, but the possibilities of various epileptic phenotypes and some of them being so-called benign. Yes, no, I agree. And really the description of the seizures in more detail that should lead the, sort of the classification a little more exactly. advanced perhaps. One other manifestation that you found in these children was visual hallucinations and these I think were probably formed rather than primary sort of colours and things. So they were probably relatively anterior in the occipital lobe and to my mind really quite close to the posterior temporal neocortex, where I think the primary source of vomiting is likely to be. So they're probably um, reasonably close in to those two varieties of seizures in their localization. Yeah, I, having not actually performed the, the interviews, Dr. Wanaka-Singer did that. I don't have the details of, of those uh, specific phenomena. I mean, these are children, uh, many of whom would be somewhat limited in communication, I suspect. Yeah, no, you, you may well be right. So you're, you're, you're saying that, that, that those visual hallucinations relate to some scarring at the junction with the, with the infarct, maybe. I'm just not convinced that the seizure semiology in these children is a true seizure semiology that's symptomatic of the underlying lesion, that it's more a seizure semiology that relates to the functional disturbance that arises in a certain region of cortex or, or, or a network. In, in this case, I think we're all agreeing it's, it's posterior with similarities to Paniotopolis syndrome often that's 
you know, that's age limited and goes away. Yet these, you know, these kids still have their scarred area of brain. So I, I just don't think there's a direct relation. Needs to be a direct relationship made between the seizure semiology and the lesion on the scan. That's, that's really I would have thought like. that uh, the seizure semiology was the starting point. Really, you can then argue as to whether you think it's spread, and you can then have evidence for that spread on the basis of both semiology, the EEG and the, and the MR. Yeah, but I think the semiology tells you about the region. I think we're not arguing about the region. I think it's, it's what's causing that seizure with its seizure semiology. And I, I believe that what these children have is a functional disturbance in the posterior cortex akin to what is seen in Paniotopoulos syndrome in otherwise normal children, not a physically-based disturbance due to scarring because the latter would manifest as a true symptomatic focal epilepsy with ongoing seizures in, in, in many more children than, than yeah. we saw. Well, I, could, uh, I could agree with you that the benign epilepsies that we've been talking about do earmark networks and systems, and they're, obviously not, they're not obviously lesional. And so that, um, yes, they may well be sparked off, but you've got to have some edge to your hypothesis. Otherwise, it's the disturbance of a, of a network you could use to explain everything, really. So you've got to argue, I think, from where the damage is and see what, how it might relate. And, and I, uh, I disagree, Brian. I, I, I think the... The, the damage that these children have gives rise to their predisposition to seizures, but the majority of these children don't have a, a lesional epilepsy as you would classically conceptualise it. There was marked heterogeneity in the size and distribution of the ischemic lesions, but marked homogeneity in the, in, in the seizure disorders. And I don't see these children as having a true lesional epilepsy, and these are children that... You know, I don't do video EG monitoring on. I wouldn't consider operating on and so forth, you know, the majority of them. I, I think the abnormality that they've got leads to whatever the maturational disturbance or, or whatever the mechanism is of these so-called idiopathic partial epilepsies and with its characteristic electroclinical features and its characteristic age limitation. And, and from a management point of view, potentially the exacerbations and things that can occur with some drugs, which is, I think, another important key, key point from this. Well, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis, but it needs to be uh, tested. Um, was there anything else you wanted to discuss on the article? I think there were the... You had some... Only a small number, too, I think, with reflex or presumably startle epilepsy, which in a, a group of children with congenital hemiplegia and epilepsy, is rather a low number. But, of course, sometimes you have to ask a specific question about provocation. These children, the parents were specifically asked that, and... Uh, they were, okay. Uh, this, uh, this was done in a, in a very formalised way. It was using right. the, uh, the interview process that right. the researchers do at the Austin Hospital for all their genetic research, and that's a specific question. I think okay. what you're alluding to is a... Often a, a very refractory form of epilepsy in this patient population that 
is associated with some referral bias to centres, you know, such as ours that would, uh, you know, yours and ours that would deal with refractory epilepsies. They're, they're a very difficult group of patients to uh, to treat. Yeah. I think the low number just comes about because this was a relatively more community-based sample yep. than the ones that would front up uh, with refractory epilepsy. They're a very difficult group of patients, those. That's fair enough, but it's just in documenting, really, whether mm. there are other forms of congenital hemiplegia with epilepsy, which is common. Yeah, I think if, if a child had those uh, reflex manifestations, I would not see that as part of this uh, benign group. I think that potentially puts them more into the true lesional mechanism at a cortical or subcortical level. Is there anything, Simon, that you'd like to highlight? I think um, just from my clinical experience, I think the same findings would occur if you looked at a group of children with spastic diplegia and predominantly white matter abnormalities, uh, exprims. That's, again, my experience from the clinic, and that you would see a uh, a large representation of, of children with the benign uh, idiopathic style focal epilepsies. Uh, you probably wouldn't see the, uh, the spasms group as, as often. So I think if it was you know, replicated in that particular group, it would be a very interesting uh, study as well. We've done that study. Um, Brigitte Volmer did it as her PhD. And it's usually a very mild form of epilepsy, unless, of course, they've had uh, an anterior bleed into the frontal lobe, in which case they have the epilepsy associated with that. Mild features of it would very much fit in to the Paniotopolis and BRE oh. group, I think. Uh, if you, if they you look didn't after. really, I have to say. The, the main thing we were looking for then was why uh, a primarily white matter disorder should cause seizures. Uh, and the reason was the ones who had seizures has very severe white matter abnormality really abutting on the grey matter so that they were evolving grey matter. So that I mean, yeah, that's that in, in, in my experience from seeing these children, they their EEGs show prominent stereotyped uh, discharges that look a lot like centrotemporal spikes and uh, you know right. their preschoolers have the bouts of status, uh, hemiconvulsive and versive status and the the, pri the primary school age kids have the nocturnal convulsive seizures and uh, and then they, oh. they very often settle down as they get older. That may be a different population because they're referred. No, no, this is, this, this is in is the... Because ours are... Um, ours were, in fact, of course, the uh, severely preterm babies from University College Hospital uh, cohort. So but they weren't selected on primarily having spastic diaplegia, though, of course, some of them did. Is that published data, Brian? No, it isn't, yes. No, no. Uh, it's been a great discussion. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Um, okay. Th thank you very much indeed. It, uh, it has been very interesting hearing you both discussing this. And I, I must say it, it sheds a lot of extra light on the article as well, which I just have to remind our listeners is Wanaga Singhi et al. Epilepsy and Hemiplegic Cerebral Palsy Due to Perinatal Arterial Ischemic Stroke coming out in the November issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.